Welcome to Your Wellness MD Podcast. This is where family physician and wellness expert, Dr. Daniela Stein and her life coach sister, JB, share holistic solutions for your everyday health and wellness challenges. We explore the connection between a healthy body, mind, and soul, and share tips that will enable you to thrive. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to today's podcast, JB here and my sister, your health and wellness coach, Dr. Daniela. Hi, JB, and hi from me. Today, we are talking about a very fascinating subject, how our genes are not our destiny. Our genes play an important role in our health, but so does our behaviors, the environment, what we eat, and how physically active we are. Indeed. In medicine, there is a field called epigenetics. Epigenetics look at how our behavior change how our genes works. Epigenetic changes are reversible. It doesn't change our DNA. So DNA is something you inherit from mom and dad. But epigenetics change how our body reads our DNA. I often see patients in my clinic where they are genetically at risk of developing certain diseases. So for example, if their mom and dad developed diabetes in their 60s, these patients are genetically at risk for developing diabetes. However, due to lifestyle changes, eating more processed foods, being less physically active and spending more time in front of their computer screens, these people would develop diabetes already in their 30s. And we also see the same phenomena when people move from more rural areas to cities or when they immigrate to new countries. That's crazy. So, yes. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but that means that some of the diseases, illnesses we have might actually be partly because of our behaviors. So, for example, like you mentioned, I could have, I was supposed to only develop a certain illness in my 60s. So, because of my behavior, I'm now developing it in my 40s, for example. So, are these changes to our genes permanent? So epigenetics does change throughout our life and it it is part of normal development, but it does change in response to our behaviors. And a good way to illustrate that is the studies that specifically been done on people smoking. When they do smoke, there is a certain part of the one gene called AHRR gene, where smokers tend to have less DNA methylation than non-smokers. And then after they quit smoking, Former smokers can begin to have increased DNA methylation of this gene again. And then eventually, after many years, they can reach similar levels of those of non-smokers. Fascinating. What else can affect your epigenetics? Infections can, germs, bacteria, or viruses. And they weaken your immune system in order to live longer in your body. That's a way that viruses cope for their own survival. In South Africa, where we're from, we're quite familiar with tuberculosis. This is a bacteria that spreads by coughing. And so if someone coughs on you, you can get that bacteria, but it can stay dormant in your body for years. Some people do get obviously sick at a certain point then. You can notice it with different things most common is when they start coughing if it affected their lungs. Interesting. I remember, I think that's a illness Nicole Kidman's character died from in the movie Moulin Rouge. Exactly. This mycobacterium tuberculosis can cause changes to the histones in some of your immune cells that result in turning off the interleukin-12b gene. 
setting off this interleukin 12B gene weakens your immune system and it improves the survival of the tuberculosis bacteria. And then there are other mutations that can make you more likely to develop cancer. You know, very good studies have been done specifically linked to breast cancer and colon cancer. Another fascinating field of epigenetics is about pregnant women mm. and how a pregnant woman's environment, behavior, and what she eats, whether she eats healthy or whether she gets enough foods during pregnancy, can actually change her baby's epigenetics. Now, as I understand, some of these changes can remain for decades and might even make the kid more likely to get certain diseases. For can you sure. tell us more about that? For sure. Some of these nutrition and environmental factors are more subtle, and then some are more well-known. Something most of us are familiar with is the harm of alcohol or illicit drug use during pregnancy. But then there are other factors not as commonly talked about that does influence the baby's outcome. For example, there is a very big study that's been done in the 1940s. There was a winter famine in Holland. People whose mothers were pregnant during the famine were more likely to develop certain diseases such as heart disease or schizophrenia and type 2 diabetes. Around 60 years after the famine, researchers looked at the genes and the methylation levels in people whose mothers were pregnant with them during this famine. And these people had increased methylation at some genes and decreased methylation at other genes compared to their siblings who were not exposed to those famine in utero while their moms were pregnant, and then those siblings didn't develop the same illnesses. And I often discuss this regarding diet specifically with my pregnant patients when they are working through eating disorders while they're pregnant. So what you are saying is what a mom eats or don't eat definitely affects her pregnancy or can affect the pregnancy and the health of the baby. For sure. And to the other side as well, if we live in more affluent areas where we're exposed to very high sugar and high carbohydrate intake while pregnant, and then we're at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes while pregnant, the sugar levels in mom's bloodstream will cause baby's pancreas to secrete extra insulin while it's still in mom's uterus. And then once baby is born, the baby's pancreas continues to secrete extra insulin and then baby's blood sugar would be lower and can drop to unsafe low levels as soon as baby comes out. Wow, that's crazy. And then you have to deal with that. So that baby, if it wasn't for the mom's diet, could have been a perfectly healthy baby. Yes, and there's actually other complications as well to a mom that's diabetic while pregnant. The baby is at a higher risk of having immature lungs once baby come out. And then we might need to put baby on oxygen for a couple of hours or day. It could be that baby comes out bigger. We call it macrosomia. And those moms, I often advise them to rather deliver in a hospital rather than a home delivery because the labor itself might be more difficult. And then once baby comes out, we monitor baby so closely to make sure that the baby's blood sugar doesn't drop. Okay. And then I assume when the baby is born, skin to skin care is what you initially or immediately recommend. Exactly. And then also to get baby to nurse right away. And if baby does nurse right away, it helps to keep these blood sugar levels elevated. If we measure the blood sugar and it's not high enough, then we would often give the baby an intravenous line with sugar. Well, so what do you do if the baby's pancreas continues to make too much insulin and the 
baby's blood sugar stays low. We continue to monitor baby and usually after a couple of days of supplementing with this intravenous sugar and making sure mom is able to nurse well, supplementing with express breast milk, usually within a couple of days, the baby's blood sugar levels normalize. However, baby would unfortunately be at long-term effect and risk of developing diabetes themselves. Oh, wow. So if some of our listeners have a conversation with their moms tonight and find out they did have diabetes or another illness while pregnant, or the listener themselves had diabetes, would their children then definitely develop diabetes? Or is there something they can do to prevent it? Well, this is the fascinating world of nutrition and medicine. With healthy lifestyle and diet, we can prevent so many illnesses, including diabetes. Fascinating. So if you avoid foods which are high in sugar and processed foods, then you can either delay the onset of diabetes or potentially prevent it altogether. I do have a question here. So you mentioned processed foods and high sugar. It's so hard to know what is processed. So I know I always have this discussion with my husband. He loves his traditional breakfast cereal and bagels and, you know, donuts sandwiches from the sandwich shop. What exactly is processed foods? I advise my patients to eat food the way it comes from a farm. So whatever types of fruits or vegetables or meats that the way it came maybe a hundred years ago from a farm would be more in its natural state. Whereas anything that first gets processed in a factory and then additives gets added, you lose a lot of nutrients along the way. And then by the time you eat this food, when it comes out of a box, you don't get all those nutrients, phytonutrients that you would get from fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. Okay. Are there definitely some steps I can take? For example, later today, I'm getting guests, having guests, I'm making a tomato sauce. We call it a sheba to eat with the sausages I'm making and I'm using real onion, but canned tomatoes. Is when you have tomatoes in the house, just rather use it fresh versus from a can. Is that the type of methodology? And it's not always bad to use canned tomatoes. If it is still, you must always try to look at the ingredients on the container. If it's one ingredient, if it just says tomatoes, that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. The bigger problem is if you eat things like type of children's lunchbox foods where there's 10 or 12 ingredients listed, you know, and you didn't know what those ingredients are, you know, it's unfamiliar words, mm -hmm. that becomes a bigger problem. Okay, that's, that's great and valuable suggestions to implement as a family. And as we know, it's about baby steps. It's just gradually moving away from those type of foods that are high in sugar, super processed to Healthier. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the foods that can help prevent diabetes specifically? For sure. Foods such as green vegetables, leafy greens and cruciferous vegetables. And then also to focus on non-starchy vegetables like mushrooms, onions, garlic, eggplant and peppers. These foods doesn't have an effect on our blood sugar level and they're full of fiber and phytochemicals. Beans, lentils and legumes are great carbohydrates. They have a low glycemic load and they also reduce the risk of colon cancer. So if you eat bread, bread gets converted into your body, into sugar, and it causes an insulin spike and then your blood sugar crashes again. But if you eat other types of foods like beans and lentils rather as your starches, 
it releases sugar slowly and you don't get that, that spike and that crash. Then nuts and seeds are also low glycemic load. They promote weight loss. They have anti-inflammatory effects and they actually prevent the development of insulin resistance. If you really crave something sugary, fresh fruit is always better than any other types of sugar because they're rich in fiber, they have antioxidants, they're nutrient dense, and they've shown to reduce the risk of developing diabetes by 18%. Wow. But if you already have diabetes and tend to have too much sugar, what fruits can you Mm. eat? Then I advise to stick with fruits that are lower in sugar, such as berries or kiwi, oranges or, or melon. And to always make sure that you eat the fresh fruit itself, never concentrated juices, not juices, but the fruit itself. That was going to be one of my questions that I assume, I think we all know you should try and avoid it for kids, but it's not a day that doesn't go by that my son doesn't ask for fruit juice. So what you can start doing is just to slowly dilute it a little bit, a little bit. I know with my kids, if they saw me dilute fruit juice, they were unhappy about that. So to make sure you dilute it when he doesn't see. And then slowly he gets used to the taste of it being less sugary and less sugary. And then at a certain point, it gets so diluted, they're kind of okay with drinking water because the juice isn't that good anymore. (laughs) That's good to know. And then the other refined foods you also mentioned, we should try and avoid as far as possible. Definitely cereal. You know, there's there's actually no nutrition in cereal and quite a lot of sugar. So if you can, for your kids, rather give them steel-cut oats for breakfast, it's always good to add protein to it, such as walnuts. You can add berries. If there has to be something sugary, you can always try for kids above two years, unpasteurized honey. Before two, we still give pasteurized honey. A little bit, you know, maple syrup is what we do here in Canada. We, but, but definitely to try to stay away from refined grains, such as white rice and white flour. There's one study actually that showed that people eating no refined flour and only whole rye products had increased gene expression for diabetes. Fried foods such as potato chips and French fries and donuts also increase the risk of inflammation in your gut and it increased risk for other inflammatory conditions such as heart disease, stroke and diabetes. Yeah, it's like Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and don't eat food that's going to make you sick. I've heard this phrase, food as medicine, much more frequently in recent years, especially with the growing popularity of diets such as paleo, Mediterranean, keto, vegan diets. From a medical doctor's perspective, what does this really mean? So I've often in medical practice advised patients, you know, when they have high blood pressure or diabetes or autoimmune diseases to implement diet and lifestyle changes first. And that's part of our guidelines. Before we start medication, when we diagnose someone with an illness to first try lifestyle changes and then to come back after three months and six months, and then we can test their cholesterol or blood sugar levels again. And then only once these measures fail, we'll implement medication. However, I have found that many of my patients fail because they don't really receive adequate guidance and an understanding of nutrition and lifestyle changes. So I often recommend them working with a nutritionist or with a health coach to really to try to implement these changes. Someone that's very familiar, you know, with healthy foods and can explain. The way I explain is that our bodies get all its nutrients and energy from what we eat. Our food is our fuel. 
when we need our bodies to function at its highest capacity, we really need to optimize our diet. And with whichever of these diets you mentioned, the basic idea is to try to eat more the way our ancestors would have eaten. So not food from a box and not, but rather food the way we find it in nature. Yes, which makes perfect sense. Got it. Eat food as natural as possible and gradually move away from food that comes in boxes. But once again, baby steps, even if you can just change out one or two things per day. For example, for lunch yesterday, after speaking with you about this, I replaced my bread, avocado, salmon, and bread was what it was going to be. And then I had avocado, salmon, and farro, which is a type of um, starch. And um, it was actually fantastic. So yes, this is wonderful, sis. Now I'm on a mission to change my family's epigenetics. Until next time, stay well. Remember, optimal health comes from within. Take care. Thanks for spending your time with your wellness MD doc, Daniela and JB today. For more episodes, subscribe to our podcast. We would love to connect with you at info at wellnessmdhelp.com. And remember, you were created to thrive. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast.